Why Restrict Freedom of Expression? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Camden Hutchison. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Camden Hutchison. Camden is an assistant professor at the Peter A. Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia, where his research and teaching focus is on corporate transactions, comparative corporate governance, and the historical development of corporate law. He has also published on corporate taxation and competition law. His current research focuses on the relationship between legal policy and entrepreneurship. He's also interested in free speech and freedom of expression, especially as it pertains to the uh, legal interpretations uh, around those statutes and uh, jurisprudence in Canada, and a lot of that will be what we're talking about today. Camden, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. So Camden, we, we base each episode on a theme and question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today that's framing the episode is, why restrict freedom of expression? And that's really a gateway for us to explore your thoughts and analysis on the Canadian legality specifically surrounding freedom of expression, but we'll also be exploring broader themes through that. So where I would like to start actually is, especially because we hear a lot of our American friends talking about the Constitution and their Bill of Rights and so on, if we're going to have some aspects of our episode today be a little Canadian-centric, um, I'd like to start with, where do Canadians source their right to free expression? Let's assume we're talking to somebody that doesn't know anything about the Canadian system. Is it the Charter of Rights and Freedoms? Like, If you're a Canadian, where are you actually grounding your any of your legal legs to say, we have a right to free expression here, whatever that looks like? Yeah. So, um, you know, freedom of expression um, in the Canadian context is, you know, instantiated in the modern sense in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So Section 2B uh, guarantees freedom of expression. Uh, but I would say in, in Canada and kind of in the Anglo-Canadian legal tradition, uh, freedom of expression uh, has existed much, much longer than that. So the Charter dates from 1982. But the, the concept of, of freedom of expression uh, goes back hundreds of years in the English political tradition, right? So it was not, it wasn't like invented uh, by the Americans, even though, although the First Amendment's a very, very famous uh, protection of, of free speech. Um, but freedom of expression, you know, in, in, in the broadest sense, the idea that we should tolerate expression that we disagree with or expression that we find objectionable is, is really something that kind of came out of the European wars of religion, um, right? And sort of a realization uh, in European societies that religious strife, uh, religious violence was something that was, you know, incredibly destructive, was tearing societies apart. Uh, and there was an idea that, that people need to learn to tolerate each other and need to learn to coexist and tolerate uh, ideas that they disagree with. At that time, it was religious ideas in particular was was the crux of the issue. Uh, but free speech has, you know, expanded far beyond that. And, and we often think of it as a more of a, a modern political protection rather than a religious protection. Um, but, you know, freedom of expression in a somewhat more limited form was included in the English Bill of Rights, which dates from the late 1600s. Um, so it's something that's that's been around for a long time in the English political tradition. Um, in Canada, there's a, a federal Bill of Rights that dates from 1960 that protected um, uh, free expression, uh, at least from interference by the federal government. And then and then the Charter, which is obviously a very important document in Canadian constitutional history, uh, has sort of formalized uh, freedom of expression in the modern sense. And so in, in Canada, when we talk about freedom of expression today, we're typically talking about Section 2B in the Charter. Um, that's that's kind of the touchstone for, for freedom of expression today. But the general concept extends much further back than that. Excellent. That, that's a great overview. Before I d- jump into a couple more questions, I actually have to, uh, to dive into a couple of things you said just there. I want to just touch on a nuance here. It's probably going to seem like a very basic question to you, but I think it's great for context setting. So one nuance of free speech, free expression, and so on under different legal regimes that often seems to gloss, be glossed over in conversations, at least that I've found, is that you know when like a, a private entity, for instance, like restricts speech or sets rules for its own sort of area, like let's, let's just say a restaurant, for instance, saying, hey, you can't say that there, and if not, you're out of here kind of thing. If, you've, if you're racist or something, we don't tolerate that here. Um, some people seem to, in, 
at least as far as I'm concerned, mistakenly uh, think that has to do with free speech as far as charters and constitutions are sort of concerned. Can you talk a bit more about that for content context setting? Because this, because my understanding of free expression and free speech when it comes to the American Constitution or the Canadian Charter and so on is that it it ultimately is about the government's relationship with citizens, not, for instance, what a what a what a restaurant can do when it kicks its patrons out, for example. Yes, and so you've identified a very a very common uh, misunderstanding. Uh, I think that occurs in, in, you know, sort of contemporary uh, political discourse, which is there's sort of, you know, kind of two different understandings of free speech. Uh, One is, which I I think is the kind of the free speech that you and I are talking about and and that I think is is sort of the most important in a political sense is um, freedom to speak your mind or to express yourself or to express views uh, independent of government interference, right? Right. So a protection, a protection from from government, you know, prosecution, like literally, like like you can say what you want, and the government cannot punish you, right? The government can't come and put you in jail, prosecute you, right? That's kind of like what I would describe as maybe sort of the hardcore of freedom of expression, and that's what the Charter protects, right? And that's what the First Amendment protects in the United States. So you're right; that does not affect private entities. Right. Um, that has nothing to do with individuals or individual organizations. Um, I don't know, uh, you know, allegedly censoring each other or, you know, expressing disagreement. It's really but it's really uh, an issue between kind of the citizen and government. Right now, that's that's kind of what I mean by free speech. And, you know, I've, I've done research in this area. I wrote an article that, that I think we're going to talk about. And that's the kind of free speech that I'm talking about. I'm talking about free speech vis-a-vis government authority. Right. Right. And I think that that's kind of the most important concept of free speech. Now, there's another aspect of free speech, which is, can I express myself in civic society, Mm. um, you know, immune or in some sense protected from punishment or retribution by other private citizens? Right. And that is, you know, obviously conceptually similar, but from a legal standpoint and from a constitutional standpoint, it's very different. Right. So, for example, like if a private business says, um, you know, you can't say, I don't know, racist things or you can't say whatever, you know, whatever we we deem to be objectionable or you're going to have to leave this business like we're not going to do business with you. Right. Um, That's not free speech. That has nothing to do with free speech in a constitutional sense, uh, I would argue. But, you know, someone who's been, I don't know, censored or they've been kicked out of a business or they're told that, like, you know, they can't say this on, I don't know, a social media platform or whatever. I mean, they may have some legitimate grievance that they've been treated unfairly or like that the the restriction on their speech is inappropriate. So I'm not saying that that it's not an issue. It is an issue. It's just a different issue. Um, and what makes things very complicated is and I think I think you're sort of alluded to this. What a lot of people miss is that freedom of speech, not only does freedom of speech conceptually entail the freedom to express yourself, but freedom of speech also entails the freedom to not um, entertain certain viewpoints, to not platform certain viewpoints, right. to associate with the ideas that you choose to associate with and to not associate with the ideas that you choose not to associate with, right? So if a private entity, say like a social media company like Facebook or Twitter or whatever, right, YouTube um, or, or, or even like kind of smaller uh, smaller organizations that might be operating on the internet, if they make the choice, like we're not going to platform a certain type of speech, right? Like, you know, your speech violated our code of conduct or your speech is objectionable in some way. We're not going to platform that. They're exercising their free speech rights in a sense, right? So there can be a conflict between individuals' uh, freedom of expression. And I think sometimes, uh, I think some people believe that they have the right to say whatever they want to say in civic society, immune from consequences, including private consequences. Right. They can say whatever they want to say and no one can get mad at them. No one can uh, object to what they're saying. And I think that that's a very like immature understanding of free speech. Right. right. Because obviously we live in a society. And if you say things that people find objectionable, they're going to object like that's that's reality. You can't claim immunity from that. What you can claim immunity from is that the government can't prosecute you. The government can't punish you, fine you, put you in jail, et cetera. So even though these two. Uh, debates are related to each other. I think they're very different from a legal standpoint. 
yeah, not only the debates, but also the, as you kind of alluded to as well, like the consequences themselves. I mean, like, as, as you said, like, you know, and I'm, and I'm being a bit silly here to make a point, but it's, it's, you know, on the one hand, it's different if a bunch of other, your fellow citizens get mad at you and kick you out of a restaurant versus being thrown in jail. So it's important that that stuff isn't also conflated too, because the state has different sorts of uh, consequences it can levy upon people basically. So that's really key too, I think. Right. And I think that, that, you know, the consequences are very different and like the consequences of government prosecution are generally more serious and more severe than, you know, kind of, uh, I guess, uh, private punishment or private retribution. But I, you know, I want to, so I want to acknowledge that kind of private punishment and private retribution can also be quite serious, right? Oh, so yes, say, for example, and, and, and so, you know, I, I think it's a real issue. I don't want to downplay mm-hmm, mm-hmm you know, the seriousness of, of that as an issue, like in our culture, because I think we're in a cultural moment right now, where it seems like, you know, my view on it is there's, there's almost like less and less tolerance yeah. for disagreement, there's less and less tolerance for people saying things that someone mm-hmm. else might find. And, and social consequences can be harsh, like it's not like they're all yeah, just silly. Yeah, right? yeah. So like, you could have a situation where, for example, I'm just making up like a hypothetical, but you, you have a situation where someone says something objectionable, I don't know, in their private life or in public or on social media or something like that. It has nothing to do with like their job or their employment, but then like a whole bunch of people get mad and then they end up losing their job over it. Right. That's not good. Like, I think that that's, that's bad. That's a bad outcome that I think we should, you know, we should speak out against that kind of collective punishment of people, but it has like nothing to do with the chart. Right. Right. Exactly. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a constitutional issue. It's more of like a, like, what do we want our culture to look like issue? Two separate but important issues. I absolutely right. completely agree. And I think that's great that we actually went down that path to establish that because the rest of our chat is pretty much going to be about that constitutional and governmental and charter side sort of thing. So I think that that was great. We went through that. So actually, let, let's go even further then in, in terms of talking about, I guess, the free speech, free expression regime in Canada specifically, if you will, because I wanted to get into this. You know, of course, just like other regimes with Supreme Courts and charters and constitutions to point to, it's not just that this stuff is written down in one place forever, right? There's interpretation of rights documents there's there's you know court precedents jurisprudence if you will all that to say can you lay out what the overall standing interpretation or common interpretation on the limits of what on on the limits of speech in canada are you know using canada as an example because it's not it's not just you know you can say whatever you want that's not written in the charter the courts have dealt with this right so the i think the first thing to emphasize is that although um you know section 2b protects freedom of expression in section two more broadly protects a number of expressive rights, including freedom of religion. Um, even though that's, you know, that's, that's explicitly protected in the charter, none of the rights protected by the charter are absolute, right? According to the text of the charter itself. So section one of the charter is basically like a proviso that says, you know, Canadians enjoy all of these rights that are set out in the charter but, you know, the government can place reasonable restrictions on these rights uh, under certain circumstances, right? Um, so basically, Section 1 to the Charter qualifies all of the charters. So just from a purely textualist standpoint, if you look at the Charter, uh, none, of the rights, none of the rights are absolute guarantees, right? Um, which is different than the U.S. Constitution, for example. So in the U.S. Constitution, you have the Bill of Rights, uh, the First Amendment protects freedom of, ex- freedom of speech and of the press, and it's written in absolute terms. So according to the language of the Constitution, it's an absolute right. Um, there's no qualifications on it whatsoever, right? So that's a that's a very um, important structural difference between the the Charter uh, in Canada and the U.S. Constitution, right? So that's kind of the first thing to the first thing to emphasize. Um, so given Section One um, in Canada, there are a number of legal restrictions on freedom of expression. So the legal reality in Canada is that freedom of expression is not absolute. Uh, under Section 1, uh, the government can basically make a case that in certain circumstances, um, the stakes are so high or it's so important that the government should be allowed to restrict uh, freedom of expression. And the Supreme Court of Canada is sort of the institution that kind of mediates the appropriateness of those restrictions. And so the Supreme Court of Canada has uh, developed uh, a test, and the jurisprudence is known as the Oaks test, Mm. uh, but it's basically a proportionality test to determine whether or not a given government restriction, whether on on free expression or some other right in the charter, um, whether or not it's, it's justified and proportionate, right? So the Supreme Court has kind of used that to mediate government restrictions on freedom of expression. And there's a number of categories of expression 
in Canada um, that are not fully protected and that the government does have legitimate limits on. So some of the key examples would be hate speech, right? So hate speech is a crime in Canada, um, and that's, you know, that's that's constitutional, according to the Supreme Court. Um, certain forms of obscenity uh, have been criminalized and people have been prosecuted for them. That's That's been deemed constitutional. Uh, certain forms of libel. Um, there's fairly serious restrictions on campaign finance, um, right? And so these are all categories of expression that are more protected in the U.S. where you don't have this kind of qualification. So, for example, hate speech is constitutionally protected in the United States, mm -hmm. right? You cannot criminalize hate speech in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, campaign finance, uh, you know, sort of controversially is much more protected in the U.S. than it is again, right? So, like, you know, private actors can can spend a lot more uh, to influence campaigns mm -hmm. than they can in Canada, right? So um, I would say that the protections for freedom of expression in Canada are strong, right? Like they're, they're strong protections. I think like the vast majority of speech is protected, uh, but there are certain constitutional limits. Mm -hmm. And I think there are, isn't there, isn't there a standard in the United States as well? Like there is a limit, but it's, it's, it's like a really high bar, isn't it? Like, uh, in, you have to be inciting something and it has to be imminent as well. Like it's something there. And the, that is once. Yeah. So yeah. And another thing I should point out, like when I say that, so the, the, uh, freedom of speech in the United States is, is kind of unqualified as a, as a textual matter. Like if you just look at the first amendment, it just says like Congress, you know, shall make no law. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like very, very kind of you know, um, unqualified language. Uh, but the reality is there's like a whole bunch of speech in the United States. That the Supreme court is deemed not to be protected. Right. And, and to be honest with you, I think that the U S approach is, is almost less satisfying because the court just kind of comes up with ad hoc categories of speech that's not protected. Like, so for example, like obscenity, um, uh, was not protected for a really long time. Um, it's still not fully protected. Um, like, you know, so things like, you know, inciting violence, um, which, you know, probably should not be, people should probably not be allowed to incite violence. Uh, but again, the court has kind of come up with these sort of ad hoc sort of justifications where I said, I think that the Canadian approach is actually um, more, more honest and more principled. Hmm, that's and that interesting. You sort of have the, the hat, you have the qualification in the charter itself. And it's sort of the, the design of the charter leaves it to the court to make those decisions. Um, where I think my personal view is some of the U.S. jurisprudence um, although I, I I like the fact that there's strong freedom mm -hmm. of uh, freedom of speech protections in the in the U.S. I think some of the some of the jurisprudence um, comes across as like a little intellectually dishonest. Like the court right. is kind of okay. you know right really sort of twisting itself into knots to explain like why right uh, a certain category of speech should be restricted mm -hmm. or to or to move uh, the understand today's understanding of an amendment to today's sort of you know understanding basically because i guess it's true to say that today's understanding of the first amendment is is relatively recent as far as the standards and the bars right i mean like it's developed over time through supreme court hasn't it yeah and i, I think like one of the um one of the weird things about kind of the first amendment in the u.s and the u.s jurisprudence like incidentally is like the first amendment right it's in the bill of rights so like goes you know kind of almost all the way back to the the founding of the of the nation um but really was kind of not an important protection uh up until like the early 20th century um so it's kind of like a dead letter i think the court or the the court just sort of ignored it and, and state governments the federal government they like engaged in censorship like all the time right and then kind of in the early early 1900s uh the first amendment kind of took on this new life and became like one of the most important uh, aspects of the constitution but that's something that's really kind of emerged over the last hundred years or so right um you know for whatever reason right that makes a lot of sense. And I'd like to get into a couple of more specifics here. It, it, I think it, it might be in the weed, it, it weeds in a good way um, because I, I, you know, I pulled a couple of things here like from your, from your paper and you, and you were getting into essentially towards, you know, the end of it, like basically what you think a better standard might be to judge like, you know, as far as if there are to be restrictions on free speech, where those restrictions come from. But, uh, but at the front end, you sort of talk about that the court has recognized, you know, basically that there is jurisprudence that relates to the importance of expressive freedom relating to certain core values. Like they're listed as seeking and attaining the truth, participation in democratic institutions, and diversity in forms of individual self-fulfillment. Um, can you sort of like, like, let's go through each of them, actually. I think that'd be interesting because I think each of them, if I understand some of your argument correctly, and also my own thinking too, um, like each of these sort of 
opens a bit of a door as far as like how far a court or someone can actually interpret each of these categories. I think that's kind of one of the problems, isn't it? Yeah. So, so you just, you just mentioned uh, what's been identified by the Supreme Court of Canada as the three values uh, that underlie freedom of expression, okay. right? So it's the first is the search for truth. The second is participation in democracy. And the third is um, individual self-fulfillment essentially. Right? So those are kind of the three values that the court has identified as, as undergirding freedom of expression. Now, and kind of going back to like sort of the kind of the first question you asked me, those three values, the court didn't make those up. So those three values, the court draws those from um, kind of ironically from a, an article on the First Amendment by a, a U.S. scholar named Thomas Emerson, where he kind of identifies these as the values that undergird a freedom of speech under the First Amendment. But those three values that he identifies, he got those from John Stuart Mill, right? So um, John Stuart Mill is like the kind of the originator of these three values. Mm. And John Stuart Mill kind of presented these values um, as as justifying a very, very robust protection for uh, freedom of expression. Right. Obviously, this is like in the English context, like back in the 1800s. Um, but he was like, you know, very close to a free speech absolutist. Mm-hmm. And he sort of identified these three values as sort of justifying his absolutist stance on, on um, free speech. Uh, and so the court has identified those as the values that underlie freedom of expression. And so in its jurisprudence, when the court's evaluating whether or not a given restriction on expression is constitutionally permissible, it, it looks to whether or not the restriction is meaningfully interfering with those values. Mm-hmm. And let, let, let's get, a, I think that all that so far has been great context setting. So if, I think it's safe to sort of switch gears into, you know, what, what are ultimately your sort of feelings on speech restrictions at all and whether there's validity to them, especially in the Canadian context. And I, have, I pulled a quote here from your paper and it kind of sums up what, what you explore in there. So you say, although certain, specifically in the Canadian context, of course, although certain forms of expression may be validly restricted under the charter, the Supreme Court's practice of assessing the value uh, of targeted expression when applying the Oaks test is both politically illegitimate and vulnerable to error. So I guess maybe here's a good time where you can get a little bit more into this Oaks test, but I'd also like to hear about, you're, you're basically talking about the politically illegitimate and vulnerable to error part. So the current standard and what's the problem with it? Yeah. So I don't have an issue with the Oaks test itself. Uh, although I do have an issue with how the court applies it in the freedom of expression context. So you identified kind of one of the, the key aspects of my argument, which is that in determining whether a given government restriction on freedom of expression is constitutionally permissible, the Supreme Court of Canada uh, explicitly assesses the value of the targeted expression, right? So I'm writing that what I focus on most in my article is hate speech, because that's kind of like a in a way, that's sort of like the bleeding edge of expression. That's kind of like right. the hardest case, right? Right. So it's it's kind of the most most interesting to think about. Um, but the court, you know, explicitly assesses the value of the expression. Is like basically like is this good expression or is this bad expression? I mean, they don't use those words, but they're like, is this high value expression or low value expression? And if they deem it to be low value expression, then they give the government a lot of latitude to restrict it. So the, the constitutional permissibility of a given restriction is tied very closely to the court's evaluation of the expression itself It's mm. being targeted. And where the three values come into play, uh, the search for truth, participation in democracy, and individual self-fulfillment, is the court uses those three values to assess whether, you know, whether it's high-quality speech. Mm-hmm. So if it's speech that, in the court's view, doesn't advance the search for truth, doesn't advance participation in democracy and doesn't advance individual self-fulfillment, then the court will let the government restrict it. I don't have a problem with those three values. I agree that those three values are important reasons to protect freedom of expression. My view is that when you look at the actual case law, um, the court's treatment of those values or its, its assessment of those values or its application of those values to speech is just unpersuasive. Right. So like I kind of get into how the court uh, addresses these values to hate speech. And I just kind of disagree at every level with how the court does that. And when I say that it's politically illegitimate and vulnerable to error, what I mean is that the court is, you know, pretty plainly, in my view, just sort of applying its own moral intuitions to determine whether or not speech is high value or low value. 
right? And I say it's vulnerable to error in the sense that, like, you know, speech that's very unpopular in a given moment, right, may be vindicated in theory at some later date, right? right? So just the, the fact that, like, the, so, like, the fact that at a given moment in society, like, almost everyone agrees that a certain idea is bad, like, doesn't necessarily mean that the idea should be censored or should be, you know, excised from uh, from civic society, right? Uh, there's a lot of ideas that almost everyone agreed were wrong that turned out to be right. Or there's a lot of ideas that almost everyone agreed were right that turned out to be wrong. Now, obviously, I'm not suggesting that hate speech is going to be vindicated someday. Right. Um, you know, I, I don't think that it will. It's it's more it's more just kind of the principle of we, we should be very careful about restricting speech on the argument that, well, like, you know, just everyone hates it. So right. therefore, it's constitutionally um, – uh, it's constitutionally invalid, or, or that's quote unquote wrong, right? I mean, like we've we've established we've established the Earth like, as a sphere, right? We don't then say, right. well, they're flat Earth theories outlawed, for example. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. Like, I mean, you and I both agree that the Earth is a, Earth is a sphere, but like that doesn't mean that like flat house uh, flat Earth theories should be should be outlawed. Like that just seems like a very you know sort of dangerous enterprise for the government to get in, and you know, and just kind of like fundamentally, like um, you know. I, I personally would not assume that the justices of the Supreme Court of Canada are really experts on like sort of mediating fundamental truth. Right. Right. Unless they're in all the peer reviewed journals on every topic, you know, what I, mean? I mean, like, like part of their argument for restricting hate speech is they're like, it's unlikely to be true. And they just sort of make that, you know, they kind of make that determination. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's kind of a weird determination for the, the Supreme Court of Canada to make. Mm -hmm. um, and so anyways, I'm just sort of very, um, um, I'm, I'm very, I'm very leery of restricting speech um, because you know, the powers that be believe that it's untrue or because like most people in society believe it's untrue. And like, I think hate speech is very easy to dismiss hate speech, right? right. Like, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think it's true. Uh, you know, most people don't think it's true. And so it's, and it's obviously offensive and reprehensible. Um, and so it's very easy to dismiss it, but there's, you know, there's a lot of other categories of speech where it's less clear. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of my, cer my concern and one of my motivations for writing this article is a sort of rhetorical expansion of, First off, like literally just the concept of hate speech is sort of expanding to a lot of speech that is just not legally hate speech, right. uh, but is being referred to rhetorically as hate speech. Like mm -hmm. that's that's a problematic development. But just also like other categories of speech increasingly, um, like the government is sort of, you know, the, the current federal government has kind of been talking about the need to regulate forms of misinformation, disinformation. Yep. Then that – that alarms me because then you sort of get into a world where the government is explicitly mediating like what is legitimately true and what's not. Correct, right. Right, and history tells us that, you know, incumbent government should not be doing that, mm -hmm. right? That is like a, a clear lesson of history, right? Or, or just like look around the world. You see that authoritarian governments uh, are very enthusiastic about uh, censoring information that they deem to be misleading or untrue or, you know, fake news, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, so I just think that that's a bad precedent. Right. No, absolutely. And I actually have a, a bunch of different things I want to get to as far as uh, both in the broadest sense, governments regulating speech and becoming the sort of arbiters of truth to some degree, either de facto or de jure. But also, um, I also want to get into some of the current government stuff that, that, that they've literally proposed, because that's very interesting stuff, too. But before we move forward, I, just one small technical thing I want to get into. You talked about the, the, the court assessing the value of speech. Does this literally mean like like the value of it in the sense of the validity of it or the value is in like, you know, uh, an offensive cartoon versus actually an academic standing at a podium in that sort of way? No, what, what they mean is more. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think they mean more the the former, uh, not the latter. So it's not like high art versus low art. Okay. I don't think that's I don't think that's what they mean by value. What they basically mean is to what extent does this advance the the three values that you know truth seeking, participation in democracy, individual self fulfillment, right? And so one of their you know their justifications for restricting hate speech, their justification for restricting obscenity, their justification for restricting libel, their justification for uh, restricting other forms of disfavored speech is that the speech doesn't advance those values, right? And I just, I personally, I find the court's account of how targeted speech does not advance those values, I just find it unconvincing on mm -hmm. its face. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of 
you know, one of the arguments that I make in the article. Is it, am I, am I wrong about this or isn't in Canada specifically like Holocaust denial actually categorically a form of speech that's not allowed or have I just muddled that all? No, no, you're right. As of very recently. Uh, so that's new, um, as of just a couple of years ago. Uh, so, um, yeah, Holocaust denial is in the criminal code. It's, it's a crime in Canada. It's a, it's a little bit more specific than that. So just, I think just Holocaust denial, like per se, is not illegal. It has to be sort of denying, or even the language, or even downplaying the Holocaust. Like you don't even have to deny it. So it's like denying the Holocaust, downplaying the Holocaust, qualifying the Holocaust um, in a way that willfully incites anti-Semitism. So there has to be that, that connection That's the standard, there. That, right, yeah. So yeah. they've connected up to hate speech in a way, basically? Is that yes. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And it's a little bit, to be honest with you, it's a little bit redundant of kind of the existing criminalization of hate speech. So it's like you have to... Basically, you have to like deny the Holocaust in a way that amounts to hate speech. I see, uh, but the, but that is a separate. You know, it's um, it's section three nineteen two point one of the criminal code, willful incitement of anti semitism. But mm-hmm. but yeah, effectively, it's the criminalization of Holocaust. And yeah, the reason I use that example, I'm actually glad you put that that hair up there because I do want to split it. Let's say one is doing it in a way that is not. Um, for example, like connected hate speech, like you're, you're just, you know, someone's asking, say, says they're asking questions. And unless anyone listening really needs to be reminded of this or have it said, I'll just say, it, obviously, I'm not a Holocaust denier. I just think this is a very interesting case because if you want to take the other perspective, one person, and I don't mean the other perspective in the Holocaust, I mean, a, the person who might be denying the Holocaust might say, well, I'm seeking the truth. I'm trying to participate in democratic institutions. And this is my hobby. It's my, my form of self-fulfillment doing this research. Is that aside from the hate speech stuff, something that's illegal in Canada too. The reason I'm asking this question through this topic is because I'm really trying to sort of cement in the listener's mind exactly where the regime sort of the edges of the sandbox are really. And I think this is a very interesting Yeah. One. So it has to, it has to, it has to involve the the willful incitement of anti-Semitism. So okay. if someone is like, just like, just asking questions, as you put it, like in good faith. Um, I mean, at first off they're, you know, I think they're probably a moron um, if they're, you know, really, Right. sort of doubtful about the Holocaust. But, you know, if they're if they're just like naive and they're just truly doing it in good faith and they're not acting out of anti-Semitism, then I think they're fine. They can't be prosecuted. Right. Even if they're even if they're like, I conclude, like I did the research and I deny the Holocaust um, as long as it's not, you know, in, as long as it doesn't entail the uh, willful incitement of anti-Semitism, then I don't think that they could be criminally prosecuted. The The big problem is and one of the reasons I, I do believe that this particular law is pernicious, and I I do not believe that Parliament should have enacted it. Mm-hmm. Is that anti-Semitism is not defined, and oh, okay. lots of people have lots of different ideas about what is or is not anti-Semitism. Right. right? So anti-Semitism, you know, I think that like if they were going to enact this law, they probably should have defined what it is in the statute, um, because like you know some some people claim a lot of things that are you know you know, certainly not hateful or even, you know, sort of relatively innocuous or anti-Semitic, you know, like criticizing the policies of the Israeli government, things like that. Right. So again, and I I don't think that that would be captured by the statute, but it's just, it's unfortunate that they, you know, they sort of tied this very significant restriction on speech to this vague concept of anti-Semitism, which is not defined. So the court overall, and, and I think we went down, went down a couple paths there to explore that. At the end of the day, the court, your, your main problem, before we go to the break here, and after the break, I want to return to sort of like what your uh, solution is or what you propose, the way this can be improved. But to round it up, is it fair to say that your main problem is that through various different angles, whether it's connecting it to hate speech or just the sort of tests that they apply, there is a lot of latitude for the court to sort of make certain determinations about what the government can limit. Yeah, there is a lot of latitude. And, you know, that's sort of, in a way that's kind of inevitable, given the design of the charter and the interplay of section one uh, with section two and with the other uh, the other sections of the charter. I mean, it was it was sort of set up to give the court that kind of discretion and to, to de- basically to decide what's reasonable and what's proportional. Um, and you know, and I think that there's costs and benefits to that approach. Uh, but I don't want to like you know I don't want to um, criticize the court. Uh, too much for taking that approach because that's kind of the approach that it has to take right. given section one, right? That makes sense. And with that, we're actually right about the time we should take our break. So we'll do so right now and we'll be back in a second. So everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Camden Hutchison today.
The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Travis Smith, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Camden Hutchison today. So Camden, I think the first half was great. We explored a lot of angles of our topic and our theme today. Uh, we were really getting into, towards the end of that first half there, uh, some of the issues that you think are, um, or the issues that can be caused, I guess, by the way the Supreme Court and the way the sort of overall free expression regime right now is uh, jigged in, in uh, Canada. Um, I want to get into sort of your solution or what you think could be improved at least. I just pulled another quote here from the paper that we've mentioned a couple times today. You say... This practice, so lots of things that we've been talking about there, should be abandoned in favor of an alternative approach of Oaks that balances, and then you say, the severity of the restriction against to the harm of the targeted expression. So can you walk us through how this, what this alternative it is, first of all, in a little bit more detail, and how you think it would be an improvement? Right. So the kind of the, the big idea that I advance uh, in my article is that the court should abandon this exercise of assessing the value of expression, right? The, the court should just get out of the business of evaluating expression, right? It doesn't mean, it doesn't matter what the, what the content of the expression is. The court should not look to the value of expression. I basically say, I t- and I take a very kind of relativistic approach, but I basically say that like, we should just assume all expression is valuable or at least is of equal value, right? Mm-hmm. Just if someone, if it's on someone's mind and they feel the need to express it, that's all we need to know. We're not going to like sort of, you know, rank, uh, different ideas by kind of how important they are, how valuable. Right, so it, all, it all has infinite value, kind of thing. Uh, right, right. For the for the you know because you know because like I said, I think it's politically illegitimate, and I also think like history shows us that authority often makes mistakes in sort of deciding what's true and what's false. Right, so that's that's kind of the reason why. Um, but I do not argue uh, that the government cannot constitutionally restrict speech. So I say that in Canada, there there is. Um, latitude for the constitutional restriction of speech, right? It's not an absolute right. Uh, and, and, you know, under the logic of the charter, it shouldn't be an absolute right. Um, and so what I advance is um, uh, a proposition that the court should focus on the harm of the speech or the risk of harm of the speech in assessing, it, right? And this kind of, you know, we can kind of in, you know, talk about kind of like the issue of like Holocaust denial, right? So, um, uh, one of the cases I talk about is the Keekstra case, which is like one of the most famous free expression cases uh, in Canada. I think it was, it was the first case um, to address a freedom of expression under the charter. Uh, it's from 1990. And uh, the facts of that case were there was a high school teacher in Alberta, and he was teaching anti-Semitic doctrine, um, including Holocaust denialism, to his high school students. Mm. Right. Awesome. It was like, it was like part, of, part of his curriculum was like, you know, teaching – um, these kind of crazy anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Uh, and he was criminally prosecuted uh, for um, uh, disseminating hate speech. And what I argue in the article is that, um, you know, his prosecution and the restriction of his speech um, probably is consistent with the Canadian Charter. Uh, I disagree with the court's analysis. So I basically say the court's analysis, which focuses on the value of the speech and how, you know, how absent of value it is, I think that that's wrong. But I think you can make uh, a plausible argument. I would make the argument that certain extreme forms of anti-Semitism, um, you know, com- combined with Holocaust denialism or, or just kind of on their own, um, can be restricted because of the, the great risk of harm that that entails. Right. So like history shows that like, like you know, the Holocaust happened, like anti-Semitism, um, you know, within living memory has expressed itself as like one of the greatest human catastrophes that's ever occurred. Right. right? So it's like. It's not a theoretical risk, right? Right. You know, six million people were killed, right? Um, so if you know someone in Canada is you know talking about like let's do Holocaust 2.0 or something, and the and you know, there's some kind of like traction to their ideas, like people are like, oh yeah, maybe this guy is is onto something, right? That's the kind of risk, you know, to to human welfare and to human life 
that I think would justify restricting expression, right? So like, you know, here's the, like the, the use kind of a thought experiment, right? And I'm, you know, as you might guess, uh, I am an ardent supporter of free expression, right? That's kind of what motivated me to delve into this topic is mm-hmm. I, I, I'm very passionate about freedom of expression. I believe in strong protections for freedom of expression, right? But I'm not an absolutist. And, you know, if you told me there's, there's someone out there and they're talking about we need to incite mass violence against an ethnic minority or, you know, or, or what have you, um, you know, whether it's Jewish people or anyone else. Um, and you could stop that. You could prevent that from happening by censoring that person's views. Uh, then I'm all for it. Like, do that. You know, green light, go ahead, censor their views. Right. Like, I don't think absolute principles about freedom of expression are, are worth, um, you know, great harm to human beings. Right. So I take a very kind of explicit cost benefit analysis to mm-hmm. it. And you know, obviously, when I present it that way, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of steel manning my argument. So I'm presenting it in the light that's most favorable to myself. Right. Obviously, the reality is going to be much more complex and much more mm-hmm. difficult because um, you're not going to have that extreme case. Right. right. What you're going to have is like like somehow the courts can have to calculate, like, what's the actual risk? of this person's views, right? what's the outcome of their views going to be like, how harmful to society are their views going to be? Yeah. But I really focus on risk of harm. So I want the court to make a more calculated evidence-based determination of the risk of human harm uh, resulted from a certain form of expression. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be the touchdown, the touchstone as to whether or not the, the expression is restricted. Mm-hmm. And, and pushing on that a little further, I guess, layer two yeah. of your proposed solution. If we get the, if we were to snap our fingers and get the court out of the business, as you said, in Canada of interpreting or deciding and making judgments on the value of the speech itself. And we shift over to this harm principle, if you will, which is very million, if anyone's following along from, from that uh, yeah, arg- yeah. argument too. So the harm principle is very important, but um, do you think that within that context then, so we've snapped our fingers and that's what the court does, that there should be a quite a high bar about what we really determine as harm? Because, you know, there is, a, I guess, or would there be, I should be asking you, not always the risk of that judicial creep, overstep, or disproportionate reaction when we're talking about harm too. There, there could be different interpretations of harm. That also um, shifts with what, you know, um, where society is at and culturally where it's at with what they think of as harm, sometimes for the better, in, in my opinion, and sometimes for the worse than others. You know, there is a difference, for example, just objectively value judgment aside between, as you mentioned, someone potentially advocating or getting a following for Holocaust 2.0 on the one hand and someone's day being ruined on the other. I know there's a lot, I'm, you know, being facetious, yeah. I know there's a lot of stuff in the middle there, but those two things do exist. And where the court lands as far as where it leans toward, there's a risk of that during the harm judgment as well, I would think. Yeah. Um, so my rationale for shifting from a values approach to a harms approach is I believe a harms approach is more objective. That that's kind of my argument. Just like out the, now, the gate. Counter- yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's just it's just it's just courts are better able to objectively determine whether something is harmful or whether something causes a risk of harm than they are to sort of like, you know, uh assess the value of an idea. Right. That's that's kind of my right. So I think it's it's the the you know the sort of the 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 problems of political illegitimacy and risk of error. I think are less if we shift to a harm approach. Now you kind of presented the car- the counter argument, which I'm alive to, which is that like understandings of harm are also subjective, right? So I'm just sort of like you kind of shifting the shifting the problem from like um, uh, you know sort of one category to another because uh, you know what is or is not harmful is also a subjective determination. Um, now I would argue it's a less subjective determination. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. But yeah. in the article, I also I also kind of present some guardrails to try to make this harm determination as objective as possible. And so the first thing I do is I just eliminate psychological harm as a cognizable form of harm. So I basically, when we're talking about harm, what I mean is like harm to life and limb or, or, you know, it's more complicated. I mean, more Mm -hmm. complicated than that. Basically, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I borrow from uh, uh, a Supreme court case called uh, LeBay which is about criminal indecency. And I, I basically kind of borrow the harm standard from that, that case, which is like a, a very good objective standard of harm. Um, and so they talk about harm as being, you know, material threats to human autonomy and liberty. Mm-hmm. Right. That makes sense. On the one hand, mm-hmm. or, or uh, materially promoting antisocial behavior. So those are kind of the two criteria. Right. And then I add a further gloss to that, which is I say, 
that um, you know harm to autonomy or liberty or antisocial behavior does not entail uh, causing psychological harm, right? And I think that's an important point because so much of the justifications for restrictions on speech, both by government and by private actors to kind of allude back to the distinction you, you drew at the, at the beginning of the podcast, is sort of grounded in this idea that just like hurting someone's feelings is harm or offending someone is harm. I mean, sometimes in its extreme form, it's described as literal violence, like saying something that's offensive to someone's sensibilities is like literally committing violence against them. Um, I reject that. And I just say that 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 form of harm, although I personally recognize it as real harm, right? I believe that psychological harm is a form of harm. I, I recognize that. I just think the experience of psychological harm is so subjective that it can't be used to criminalize expression, mm -hmm. right? Um, so just, just think about it. Like, say somebody says something offensive. Person A might be so aggrieved that, like, it ruins their day, it ruins their week, they can't sleep at night, they're so, they're so upset. I don't, you know, they have PTSD, I don't know. Like, they're really, really harmed by it. That psychological harm that they experience is real. Like, they are harmed. Like, I recognize right. that. But person B might be like, whatever, and, like, not even think about it and just move on with their day. Right. And so whether or not we're criminalizing speech can't be dependent on these like widely varying reactions that people have to speech, um, especially when I think and this is like maybe getting a like a little bit more judgmental. But I, I, I do think that, like, as a society, we should probably encourage people to be a bit more resilient and, you know, sort of not be so fragile mm -hmm. and, and be so susceptible uh, to psychological harm. Right? right. Like, I mean, I think it's just part of life is you have to deal with ideas and opinions and, and maybe even individuals that you don't like. And, you know, I don't know, you, it's, I don't think we should inculcate an attitude that we need to be protected from that. I think it's just something that we have to kind of learn how to deal with. Mm -hmm. That's, a, that's a bit of an aside. The important point is I just exclude harm from the analysis, not, or I exclude psychological harm from the analysis, right? Not because I don't believe psychological harm is real or not because like, I don't think we should care about people's feelings. I do. I just think it's so subjective that it can't be a legal test. And then the second guardrail um, is I do, I guess I would require or suggest in the article, I kind of, I'm a bit vague. I think I equivocate a bit, um, but basically that there should, the government should have the burden of presenting some kind of evidence that the harm is actually going to happen, hmm. right? Um, and so um, if it's a theoretical harm, you know, like a harm that is not occurred, like if the harm is already occurring, like you're like, you're, for example, expressing these ideas, and it's causing people to murder each other, for example, like that's, if that's actually going on, that's pretty easy, you can just point to the evidence, but look, right. like you gave a you gave a rally, you incited these people, I don't know, they committed terrorism, what, right. what have you like that, that's very clear. But when the harm has not yet occurred, that's where it gets more difficult. And I would demand that, um, and some people disagree with me on this, but I would demand that the government present some kind of social science evidence, right? Um, you know, from you know, from uh, experts or independent scholars or something that like that this is actually going to happen because it's so easy to just say, oh, if we allow people to say X, Y, Z, then like you know, mm -hmm. all of these horrible things are going to happen. Yeah, and I, I think, Frank, my personal opinion is, is often that's often exaggerated. Mm -hmm. Right. And those and those, those, those fears are often exaggerated. Right. Right. Um, so I really demand like some kind of like, you know, um, you know, whether it's I don't know if it's going to be you know political scientists or sociologists or historians or, or who are going to turn to. But I have some kind of social science evidence that like, you know, there's actually a risk that if you allow people to say these things, it's going to result in, um, you know, individual and social harm. Right. And and also it sounds like there's also sort of like a, a um, as well like sort of a, a for lack of a better term a, a likely to be imminent type test as well floating around in there somewhere what you're saying because like we could talk about theoretically uh, how something could be happening. I mean, I would say um, I don't. So imminence is kind of a is a concept that comes from the U.S. jurisprudence, and I I don't use I don't use imminence as a concept in the article, but I I do what I do say is you know as part of this cost benefit analysis that I referred to, I think that. The, the magnitude of the harm should be discounted by its likelihood, right? And so, you know, we were talking about the, the Holocaust, for example. Um, what is the likelihood that something similar to the Holocaust will occur in modern Canada? I think it's very low, 
right? Just given our given so our, our, our current social conditions, I think that it's very, 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 I would say extremely unlikely that that would occur, mm-hmm. right? However, if it did occur, right, it would be, um, you know, enormously costly, right? It would be, you know, potentially like a human tragedy uh, of immense proportions, right. right? And so you have this like really, really, really high cost that you have to discount by a very, very, very um, low likelihood. Right, I see and, what you're saying. After that discount, you still might have a pretty significant cost, right? I, you know, if, like you discount, um, you know, if you discount like, uh, you know, a billion dollars uh, by like 1%, like you still have a pretty significant amount. So right. um, that that's kind of, and, and again, this is asking courts to get into um, pretty difficult forms of measurement but i but but i i still think it's better than what they're doing right now right no no that makes sense and i I think you've you've laid out your case very well on that um like um so actually so before i depart the point actually curse me ask you this so you did mention like explicit you said you personally because we've talked a lot about the context of the of the legal regime of free speech and what the court's doing but you did pivot at one point to also just make the point of but you personally are not a, a free speech absolutist um without asking why are you not because that's a weird question um i'd actually like to sort of flip it and sort of ask like what leads what leads you to be pro some sort of limits is it just because you know straight out you think that if harm could be could happen from speech you think the government has a role to prevent it is it that you think that you know absolute absolutists themselves take their case too far and are on shaky legal ground i just want was curious to know a bit more about that because we've had have people on the podcast before who are personally either either we've directly talked about or they've indirectly stated that they they probably consider them an absolutist so i'm interested to hear your perspective on that too yeah, I mean, I would say just philosophically, I'm not an absolutist about anything. Um, I just don't think. I just personally, I just don't uh, believe in taking absolute stances on things. Um, I think, I think um, you know, absolute principles are seductive, right? Because it's sort of like it's like kind of like simplifying, and it's like kind of a way to understand things. Like you have like you know absolute principles that you can always kind of you can always turn to, right? Um, but I think the reality of life and the reality of the human condition is is so uncertain and ambiguous and messy. Um, and ever-changing. Yeah, yeah, that I'm just not – I'm really just like I don't really believe anything in, in an absolute sense. And so I would say – when I say I'm not a free speech absolutist, I, I please don't interpret that to mean that like I don't – you know, I don't believe in strong protections for freedom of expression. I do, but it's just, you know, and it goes back to my, my thought experience, right? If you could, if you could prevent a terrible human tragedy at the cost of restricting somebody's freedom of expression, then I think you should restrict somebody's freedom of expression. So I'm, I'm more utilitarian in that sense. Um, but, you know, I just think that, I don't know. I just think that the reality of, uh, the world we live in is that you you have to be open to compromising on principle in in, in certain circumstances, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and I, I I kind of I understand the arguments for um, for an absolute conception of free speech, and I probably in less of an absolutist today than I used to be. I probably used to be more of an absolutist, um, but yeah, it's just kind of like you know, I, I don't think. Just my intuition is that free speech is not the paramount goal of our existence and that like, you know, I think it is appropriate to trade, you know, in certain circumstances like human life and human welfare against free speech. Right. And so I I guess anyone who says that they're hardcore freedom of speech absolutist, I would present that that hypothetical to them. Mm -hmm. Right. Interesting. You know, like what if what if you could, you know, like literally save people's lives, but you had to restrict somebody's freedom of expression. Right. And for example, through the tests you've talked about, not just some guy wakes up and dictates it, but that there's actually a, a, a regime that actually tests that properly. Like that's 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 an interesting thought experiment you can right. And you know, and the and the and and the counter argument, of course, is that you know, um, absolute principles are important because like people are always like the exception that I gave. Like people are always going to claim that exception. They're always going to say like, well, in this case, we have to. And you can never really be certain if you actually have to, right? Like the future is uncertain. You don't know what, you know, you, you don't exactly know what the consequences of restricting or not restricting expression are going to be right. in any given situation. But again, just sort of speaks to like, um, I just, you know, it's, I think it's good to have strong principles, uh, but you can't let your principles sort of 
dictate your reaction to reality in every circumstance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as our time winds down here, I just have a couple more, I guess, sort of gray area questions for you, and then we'll head to our formal wrap-up. But I think so far you've made your case well, and we've explored a lot. It's been very interesting, so thank you for that so far. Um, Do you think that all of this discussion, and I'll say right off the bat that I'm certainly not looking for uh, a direct or clear answer from you in this, because I'm going to cover something broadly that might in and of itself take three hours. (laughs) But do do you think this debate sort of gets further complicated when it comes to the nature of all the media we're exposed to today and how, for example, on places like YouTube or streaming services, people who consider themselves creators, if you will, are often blending things like opinion and news and their art and the way they express themselves. You know, you can go to a YouTube channel today and mm-hmm. someone might, I don't know, they could argue, uh, you know, something that you might determine as, as hateful and going to cause harm that would not pass a test yeah. that you think is appropriate. You might go to their YouTube channel and find that there's some messaging under that. But as far as they're concerned, they've created a five-minute animation that that's the way they express themselves. Maybe there's a, a, a very terrible anti-Semitic hate speech undertone under there that you and I would agree that's terrible. Um, but but you know they're they they say well I'm a creator I'm not a news outlet like we have all different kinds of interesting blurred lines and different types of media today. Like I'm not mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if you have any broad stroke thoughts on that kind of thing because it's not just the news that we all pick up the paper every morning now. There's so much out there. Well, I think the the sort of um, the way that the internet has facilitated. Uh, the ability of kind of individuals to to express their views and to broadcast their views, whether it's their opinion, whether they're reporting news, whether it's artistic expression, um, whatever. I mean, I think that that's kind of other things being equal is a good thing, right? So if people can put content out there on YouTube, I'm kind of like the more the better. Um, I think the reality is that if people are putting like anti-Semitic, like clearly anti-Semitic content or hateful content on YouTube, like YouTube is not going to allow that and will not be on YouTube, right? So so YouTube has its own editorial standards. And this kind of gets back to what you were talking about early on. Um, but like, you know, YouTube is, you know, it's part of, it's part of Alphabet, which mm-hmm. is a for-profit company. Mm-hmm. And like they have their own kind of philosophical and economic reasons not to allow that kind of content. And right. they don't. Oh, right, right. So right. I, I, and I should if say- there's something that's yeah. like totally reprehensible on mm-hmm. YouTube, it's not going to be there for long. Right. It's going to get taken down. Um, I think where things get more complex is right. Cause somebody can, if they get shut down by YouTube, I don't know. They can go on, I don't know. Like there's like these kind of more underground kind of, you know, or like right wing platforms that will, will put that stuff up. Um, I think where it gets more complicated is, you know, I think that the internet has had a, you know, I'm stating the obvious here, but it's had a very, very, um, significant impact on our information environment, right? And on our media environment and the type, the types of information we consume, the types of media that we consume, the types of art that we consume. It's really changed things in a very, very significant way. And that it's sort of democratized uh, both the both the production and the reception of information. Right. So um, you know, factual information, news information used to be um, mediated by, you know, kind of gatekeeper media institutions Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who sort of hold their audiences like this is what the news is this is what the facts are this is what reality is Mm -hmm. that's less and less the case right so now we have individuals alternative sources of you know like alternative facts um in the words of kelly conway um like you know like anybody can kind of say anything which uh you know part of me is tempted to say well that's a good thing that's kind of democratized information but I think it actually has had like really it has serious negative implications, right? So it's it's not an unambiguous good. I mean, I think there's aspects of it that are good, but I think you know, misinformation, I, I mentioned misinformation. One of the things I've been troubled by is the current federal government, they haven't really done anything yet, but they they're always kind of hinting at yeah. this desire to regulate misinformation on the internet or disinformation on the internet, which I, I think would be uh, a terrible idea. But I do think that misinformation on the internet is also a problem, right? Like there's people who are propagating, um, you know, all sorts of different uh, conspiracy theories that have little or no factual basis. People have completely siloed, polarized views of reality, right? Like people just are like more and more like fundamentally not on the same page about like just sort of basic reality or what's going on in the world, right? Because they're being, influenced or propagandized by all sorts of uh, uh, sources. Mm-hmm. So this sort of democratization of media and democratization of information has had its downsides for sure. And I'm concerned by that. And I think the government should address it. I just don't think the government should address it through censorship. 
So we're living in a very, you know, a very complicated uh, world and a very complicated information environment, which definitely has implications for freedom of expression. And I think it, it raises real problems, but I think the governments, including the Canadian government, should resist the impulse to censor, mm-hmm. right? I think that that's, I think that's not the answer. And I think the cure would be worse than the disease. Right. No, that, that makes a lot of sense what you said. And I forget who it was. I actually think it was on a uh, CBC radio show, actually, where someone brought the point that, um, and they actually went into tweets from uh, one of the current ministers, and they basically said, you know, like this point that they made right here, and they had three examples of it, and they basically said, you know, there's a seed of truth there, but literally it's a partisan political point. They're sort of manipulating a statistic. And they actually said, like, imagine this regime where we do have a bureau where someone's trying to point out misinformation, and this miniature's minister is technically in charge of that department in government. What what do you do about that? Because no, you're, the people you're in government are actively yeah. participating in society as well. So this is a weird issue, right? You're, you're describing the kind of the nightmare scenario, which is like in some sense is like already occurring, right? And I don't want to be like super partisan and like attack the current government or anything like that. But like they're sort of MO right now. Like there's a number of, a number of ministers in the current cabinet who, um, you know, will engage in, you know, political rhetoric, political discourse. They'll say a lot of things that are, you know, debatable, contestable. Sometimes they say things that are just objectively false, right? right? They're kind of presenting presenting their own political narrative. And then when they're challenged on it, they're like, no, 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 that's misinformation, mm-hmm. right? And so they use this rhetoric of misinformation. It's, it's, it's what they're trying to do is they're not just saying like, no, no, I don't agree, but like, I think you're wrong. What they're saying is like, your viewpoint is, is actually illegitimate, right? It's misinformation. Yeah. Right. And well, they're, and like you... Like, and they're saying things that they're saying things that like are, you know, in my opinion, or, you know, frankly, objectively, like, I mean, they've been there's incidents where they just said things that are like just factually untrue. Right. And then when they're called on it, they're like, oh, you're, you're promoting misinformation. And it's just like, you know, that's. That's messy. I, I think yeah. that 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 kind of rhetoric, mm-hmm. I think, is dangerous. And I, I kind of wish that responsible people in government did not engage in that type of rhetoric. Um, but certainly when we start talking about now we're going to regulate misinformation, it's like, well, you're already describing things that are not misinformation as misinformation. So I'm very, very reluctant to give you the power to regulate misinformation, mm-hmm. right? Because you've, like, you've already demonstrated that you're irresponsible. Yep. So it's a very, you know, again, I don't want to sound like paranoid about it, but it's something that, that alarms me. Well, yeah, no, an excellent point. And also too, to say that like, there's another layer going on when people, um, accuse another person of misinformation, whether it's true or not. Um, it's not just talking about the information itself. If, if someone in the government, let's say this party in charge, next party in charge, whatever, when someone says you're spreading misinformation, it's not only the information that's being called into question, you're also just getting right to the root of the intention of the person and casting a net that way. Which yeah, is a whole you, I mean, you're, you're saying that they're acting, I mean, in, in bad, bad faith right. or, you know, whatever. But it's, it's like, I, I feel like rhetorically, um, you know, saying like if, if somebody criticizes the government and then the government says well you're spreading misinformation i feel like that's stronger and worse than saying you're wrong or even you're a liar it's saying like yep. misinformation the, the implication is this, this like category of information that's that's actually illegitimate and could potentially you know be like prohibited mm-hmm. in some way that that i mean that's kind of like what's lurking behind the scenes and i'm like whoa like let's slow down yeah no lots to think about there too Maybe a whole other episode, but for now, our time has definitely wound down, so I do have to move us to our, more, our formal wrap-up. Uh, Camden, has been great okay. talking to you so far, but uh, in each episode, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately does have the last word to bring the point finer, uh, to put a finer point, point on our exploration of the question and bring the conversation full circle. So let me ask you, officially, as our last question for today, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what the case is for restricting speech and how that could happen? In other words... If you wanted someone to leave listening to us here today with one, two, or just a few takeaways, if anything, what do you want them to take away? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, you know, I guess um, I one, one, one takeaway would be like, you know, please go read my article because <laughs> I, I want more people to read it. Uh, but like, you know, I guess it, it, sort of in, it more abstract. I mean, one thing I'd like people to take away, and you know, obviously not everyone's going to share my perspective on this, but is, you know, one of the things that concerns me, um, you know, I was kind of talking about the government, but one thing that kind of concerns me in the broader culture, you know, in Canada and, and, and elsewhere 
is a, you know, is a lack of tolerance for disagreement and a sort of impulse to, to restrict or to censor or to punish ideas um, that one disagrees with, right? And I, I, I feel like that's an understandable impulse, right? If someone says something that is like really offensive to you or really upsets you or makes you mad or hurts your feelings or is just is like is so wrong that you just can't deal with it. Um, and, you know, and maybe it is wrong. Uh, I, I understand the impulse to want to be like, let's shut this person up. You can't say that. Um, I don't know, like they should be censored. They should be prosecuted. They should lose their job, what have you. Um, I guess, you know, what I would like to tell people if they if they feel that impulse and I'm not judging anyone, I think it's kind of an understandable impulse is to just relax, right? Um, I think the stakes are not as high as they seem. Like people can have views that you disagree with. Like I'm friends with people who have views that I think are very wrong. Um, you know, I think that there's much, um, there's much more that we have in common, um, even with people that we feel like we strongly disagree with than, um, than, than is actually different. Right. I mean, like you may really, really disagree with somebody on one on one issue, but then like it might turn out that you agree with them on another issue, whether or, or just you can empathize with them about some human experience they've had or, you know, I don't know if you're you're into the same pop culture or something. Right. Like you can like kind of find some connection. And I think one of the things you're talking about, like kind of the rise of the Internet is it's really sort of encouraged this 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 polarization, not only of politics, but just of, of kind of everything. It's like everyone is sort of like viewing each other as kind of like, is this person like a friend or are they an enemy? And I'm kind of like, I'm a pretty friendly guy. I'm like, let's just all kind of relax, right? And if somebody has a somebody has a viewpoint that you don't like, I mean, you should feel free to engage them um, and, you know, I don't know, um, oppose what they're saying, confront them. Um, but I just feel this kind of impulse that we need to like shut people down or that we just like can't tolerate things that, that people are saying. Um, I think it's just it's just an unhealthy impulse at a personal level, and then I think it it sort of expresses itself in these in these kind of more dangerous impulses that we see in government, right? Which are which are also understandable, but I mean when the government starts talking that way, it gets a lot more concerned. Um, so maybe that's corny, but I guess my my sort of takeaway is like, hey, just think about maybe like chilling out, like you don't have to be so upset all the time. Um, a lot of this stuff is not as big of a deal as we seem to think it is. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great place to leave it. So Camden Hutchison, thank you very much for joining me in the Curious Task today. Oh, thank you. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Curious Task.